You are listening to the Life Church Podcast. To learn more about Life Church, our gathering times at any of our central Indiana locations, or our life crew online, visit us at lifechurchin.com or follow the link in the description. Today's talk is from Pastor Micah Beckwith. So we're going to be diving into um, uh, this passage of Scripture, and, and we are, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 16. And if you're new here, we go right through God's Word verse by verse. It's called expository preaching. And so we've been in 2 Samuel for this year, and we were in 1 Samuel last year. And, you know, we'll, we'll take a break every now and then, like our Christmas miracle gift. We'll, we'll break, and we'll go into that series for a few weeks. But for the most part, we're just telling you, we're taking you right from the beginning of a, of a book and going right through it and explaining and diving in together what God is trying to teach us through those books. And I'm telling you what, I, expository preaching is so powerful. I have learned more as a pastor at a church that does this than I've ever learned my, I would say combined my whole life studying the word of God. Because when you know the context, when you can see the history behind what's happening, and when you can just, you can just walk through it verse by verse over a course of time, it just, God just does just amazing things through that. So I love it. I hope you're getting as much out of it too as, as I am. And so, so that's what we're doing. So if you have your Bibles, turn in 2 Samuel chapter 16, and we're going to be starting in verse 1. Last week, we saw that David is now on the run. His son Absalom is, has taken over the throne. And David, more than anyone in Scripture, probably second only to Jesus himself, understands this key principle. He understands that there is a sovereign God who is directing the paths of people. And he, he talks about this idea, this context of anointing. And we see that when David was anointed by God to be the king, there was, a, there was another king on the throne, and it was King Saul. And we studied that in 1 Samuel. And King Saul had done wicked things, and he had walked away from the Lord. And so the Lord said to Saul, I'm going to remove you, and I'm going to raise someone else up to take your throne. And that was David. God was behind it all. While David was the rightful king... David did not go and remove Saul himself. And it was all because David said, I will not come against God's anointed. David understood what it meant to be anointed. Now, just so you know, anointed in the Greek word, where we get this, it just, it's uh, cryo is the Greek word. It means to be consecrated or to set apart. That's all anointing means, to be set apart or to empower. So if you have your notes with it, everyone have your uh, fill in the blank notes. You guys got those? If you can get those whenever I'm preaching, you can get those when, I'm, when, when you walk in. By the way, side note, Melissa said last week, she's like, you, you had a lot of scripture to get through last week and you were flying through your notes and I'm getting calls from people that said they didn't know what like, you know, uh, number 14 was. Can you help them out? I'm like, no, they should have been paying attention. And, uh, and she said, you, no, you can't do that. I said, okay, well, fine. And she said, why don't we do this? And this was her idea, so you can give her a high five. She said, why don't we take the answer key and put it in the weekly emails so that way you can then go to that and you'll see this. So if you, want the, if you want the answer key, sign up for the weekly emails that Melissa sends out about what's going on at Life Church, and we will have the, all of the notes with the answers in them, uh, in there. And then uh, check your junk folder, she said. She said. Many times people say, I'm not getting the emails. And then she'll say over the phone, check your junk folder. And they said, we already did. And she'll say, we'll do it again while I'm on the phone. And they'll go do it. And they'll say, oh, it's right here. <laughs> it's like my mom, right? Like, mom, I can't find it. Check your room. I did. And then my mom walks in and finds exactly what I was looking for, right? All right. Okay. So that's where we're going to have the answer key will be in the, in the emails. Okay. So, so, and all of the fill in the blanks are going to be the ones that are highlighted if you're new. So uh, it, it just helps, helps me when I'm, when I'm writing to, to kind of do that. Hopefully it helps you too. So anyway, all right. To consecrate or set apart or to empower, that is the word anoint. So 
really, it's, it's, just, it's just being called by God to do something. You're all anointed in this room. God has called you, every single person in this room, to do something. And if he calls you to do something, he's going to empower you to do it. So I don't want you to think that there's some like special type of Christian that gets the anointing. No, you're, you're called to be a parent. Many of you are parents in this room. God's anointed you to be a parent. He's empowering you to be a parent. Many of you are in the business realm. God's empowered you to be in the business realm. He's calling you there. Many of you are in, in the education realm or in schools. Uh, he's empowering you. You're all anointed. And the point that I want you to see here is that when David, David recognized when somebody was empowered by God to do something, it was not his job to get in their way. And if anything, he had to, he had to keep himself from getting in their way. Look at what he says in 1 Samuel uh, 24. This is David. This is when David is on the run from King Saul. He had many opportunities to kill King Saul, and he didn't do it. And he said, he said to his men, Yahweh forbid, the Lord forbid that I should do this to King Saul, my Lord the King. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. Full well knowing God had given the, the throne to David, David was saying, I'm not going to come against Saul because if God wants Saul out of there, God will get Saul out of there. I'm not going to get in the way. I don't want to—I just— do you see, see the fear of the Lord that David had? He was so, he, was, he knew God was so powerful, so sovereign, and he re revered God so much. He's like, I just don't want to, I don't want to risk it. Maybe I could remove Saul, but just maybe I might be coming against the Lord himself if I do it wrong. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to let the Lord do it himself. He goes on in verse 10. He says, this very day, he's speaking to Saul at this point. He says, Saul, this very day, you can see with your own eyes that it isn't true. What you say about me, you think I hate you? And he's holding, he, Saul was sleeping in the cave and he cut the, the hem of his garment off and he holds it up. He says, Saul, it's not true. I don't, I don't hate you. I could have killed you for the Lord placed you at my mercy back in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you for I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed. And he goes on in verse 26, chapter 26, verse 9 of 1 Samuel. No, David said to his men, don't kill him, for who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's, the Lord's anointed one? And then in verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should kill the one who he has anointed, but, but take his spear and the jug of water beside his head and then let's get out of here. They were in the camp. This is another opportunity. They snuck down into the camp of where Saul and his men were, were, were sleeping. He goes right up to Saul while he's sleeping. And he takes his spear and he takes his jug. And, he, and his men said, just kill him right now. Drive the spear through him. We'll be done with all of this. We'll be on, we were on the run. But the moment Saul's dead, you'll be the king. Be done with this. And David says, no, God could be in this. And I'm not going to come against God's anointed. And then he said, and then he said, this isn't good at all. I swear by the Lord that you and your men deserve to die. Now this is, he's talking to Saul's men after he took the jug because remember the story, one of Saul's men yelled at him and said, he said, uh, did you come into the camp? Is that one, is that the spear in the jug? And David said, you guys didn't protect the Lord's anointed. Now he's coming down on Saul's guys because they, they, they dropped the ball. And he said, you guys deserve to die because you dropped the ball at protecting the Lord's anointed because you failed to protect your master. Look around, where are the king's spear and the jug of water that, that were beside his head? I have it right here is what he was saying. And then in verse 23, the Lord gives his own reward for doing good and being loyal. And I refuse to kill you, Saul, even when the Lord placed you in my power for you are the Lord's anointed one. 
David is so, he, he understands the sovereignty of God. Fast forward to the end of Saul's life. Saul and Jonathan die on Mount Gilboa. And remember there was that scavenger uh, Amalekite kid that, that said, ooh, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take Saul's ring and I'm gonna go to David and say, I killed Saul. And David's gonna reward me because Saul and David are enemies. And we see that story play out at the beginning of 2 Samuel. And this is what happened in 2 Samuel. Uh, verse, chapter one, verse 14. Why are you not afraid to kill the Lord's anointed one, David? Why were you not afraid to kill the Lord's anointed one, David asked to the Amalekite. He said, what, you think killing Saul is what I wanted? You think that was the right thing to do? He was anointed by God and you, you reached out your hand against one of the anointed ones? Then David said of his men, kill this Amalekite. So the men thrust his sword into the Amalekite and killed him. And as the guy was dying, David said, you've done this to yourself. You've condemned yourself for you yourself confess that you killed the Lord's anointed. David respected God and feared God so much. He didn't want to get in the way of possibly what God is doing. I tell you that to lay the groundwork for this next passage that we're getting ready to dive into. This is David's heart. Even though David made a lot of dumb choices, he wasn't just anybody. He was God's chosen king. And I believe because he feared God like this, this is why God chose him. The good news for all of us is we've all made dumb and stupid decisions just like David has. But just maybe if you have that fear of God, God could call you to something great just like he did with David. But the question is, do you have the fear of the Lord in your heart? David is both God's elected, he's under God's election, but he's also under God's judgment. If you know the story, and for those of that are new here, remember um, David goes uh, and he takes another man's wife, Bathsheba. A few chapters ago, we studied this and, and got Bathsheba pregnant and wanted to cover it up. So he killed her husband and, and sent her husband to an early grave and thought he got away with it until about a year later when the prophet Nathan came to him and said, the Lord saw what you did and now your house is gonna be chaos. Now you are gonna be, you're gonna be in big time trouble. And David threw himself at the mercy of the Lord and the Lord spared him to some extent, but said, there's still gonna be major consequences for your, your sin. The Lord didn't take the, the throne away from David. He had mercy on David. He probably should have taken the throne away from David at that point, but he had mercy on David and said, I'll spare you that but your children and children's children will rebel against you. And now that's what we're seeing. David is reaping the fruit of his wicked actions. You know, Psalm 1 says this about fruit, about, about what you reap, you will sow. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the way of, of the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, does he meditate on it day and night? And he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that produces fruit in its season. And whatever he does, his leaf shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. It's all about fruit. The kingdom of heaven is just like a seed. That's why God uses that. Jesus in parables oftentimes talks about seeds. Everything starts with a seed. What seed are you planting? Are you planting good seed or are you planting bad seed? Because whatever you plant, that's gonna be the tree that grows up. And people will say, well, Christians, you know, you're, you, they'll, they'll tell Christians, you can't judge. They'll say, well, don't look at me. Don't look at the fruit of my tree because that's judgmental. No, it's not judgmental. That's just observing the tree. That's observing the seed that was planted and the fruit that is now being produced. I can see a good apple tree and I can see a bad apple tree. I know when that apple is producing good fruit and I know when I bite into an apple and I know that that tree wasn't producing good fruit. 
And you can even see it sometimes before you even pick up the apple. So all that to say, it's all about fruit. What fruit are you bearing? If you want to be prosperous, this is the secret to life right here. Meditate on the, the law of the Lord. Meditate in his word, in the Bible. Study what God says about life. The godly will be like this. And then they will be prosperous in everything they do. In what, whatsoever he does, whatever you touch, whether it's your business, your family, your church, your ministry, your, your hobby, no matter what it is, this is the promise of God, from God to those who are godly and meditate on his law. They will produce great fruit and they will be prosperous. It's been one of my prayers for my kids as they've grown up. Lord, whatever they touch, let it be prosperous, but let it be because they are mighty, righteous men and women in your kingdom. Let them grow to understand your law because I know then that will come. There's a saying out there, it, it, it's, there's, there's nothing more contagious than a bad example. And I think David, because of the bad fruit that he planted, he set a bad example. And now we see that we have a generation behind him trying to destroy him and take him out. And he's reaping those consequences. There is a passage in Exodus that talks about generational curses because of bad fruit that was planted by those that went before you. And it says this in Exodus 34, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations and I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. This is the Lord speaking. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. And that may seem like a really damning verse. So let me just say this, without the blood of Jesus covering your life, you are guilty. But with the blood of Jesus covering your life, guess what? You're not guilty. You might be experiencing a generational curse. You may have parents or grandparents that did the same thing, and you know that you're prone to this. That curse can stop right now today by the power of the Spirit of God. You receive the blood of Jesus. You pray that that blood just covers you and breaks that curse right now, and it will happen because you will no longer be guilty. God says he holds the guilty accountable but Jesus has taken your sin and your guilt from you, so you're no longer guilty. But some people choose to walk in that guilt, even though there's a way they just choose to reject it. We're going to give a time of prayer at the end, and if, you, if you're saying, man, I've been struggling with the generational curse, come up, let the prayer team pray over you to break that curse. I had a buddy of mine, his grandpa and, and dad were both alcoholics, major alcoholics. He had never touched a drop of alcohol on, in his life on his lips, but he told me once, he said, Micah, I feel that if that ever hits my lips, there's something about alcohol that's just pulling me in. I love the smell of it. I know there's just something there. I said, man, you've got a generational curse. You've been prone to this. He said, well, what do I do? I said, take it to the Lord. Break that curse right now in the name of Jesus. And he did, and praise God, to this day, he is, he's, he's never struggled with that. But he knew at one point that he has to, he, he, there was something pulling him down that path. And I said, it's just a generational curse, man. It's sin, the sin of your fathers. To the third and the fourth generations is what Exodus says. But you're covered by the blood. When you're covered by the blood, it breaks that, that curse right in half. Absalom doesn't see the anointing that God has placed on his father. And he says, you know what? I could do a better job. I'm going to steal the throne from my father because he's been a terrible king. He's been a terrible dad. He's been a terrible husband. I could do better. What Absalom forgot was that David was God's anointed and he was not. And we're going to see in the next few chapters how poorly it goes when somebody does not recognize the power of the Lord's anointed and what that anointing means. So 
I lay all that out just to say that's, the, that's where we're jumping off of to get into these next 14 verses here in 2 Samuel chapter 16. Verse 1, when David had gone a little beyond the summit of the Mount of Olives, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, remember Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of Saul. Mephibosheth was the last remaining descendant of the house of Saul that David blessed years ago. Mephibosheth was, Ziba was waiting there for King David. He had two donkeys loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 bunches of summer fruit, and wineskin full of wine. Boy, what, what a refreshment. So David, I remember last week I showed you the picture of the Mount of Olives when I was, when I was jogging through Jerusalem that morning. And uh, David would have walked up the Kidron Valley, gone through the Kidron Valley, began to walk up the east side of the city, up the Mount of Olives. Now he was over the Mount of Olives. He was coming down the other side. He was on his way to the town of Bethany. And Bethany was, was going to take him, that road's going to take him right out to the Dead Sea. He's going to be in the wilderness. The direction of Jer- Jericho is where he's going. So it helps me sometimes when I see this play out. The Mount of Olives, just so you know, is very steep. It's very, very steep. And, and so it's about 2,400 feet above sea level. So he walked up it. They're going to be tired. And then he comes to the top. He's starting to, starting to press on. And Ziba, this guy comes seemingly, seemingly this, this answer to prayer. Oh my gosh, I'm so tired and I'm, I'm exhausted. And here is Ziba, Jonathan's uh, son, Mephibosheth's servant. And he comes and, he, and he's right here at the right moment. It must be a good thing. And, and Ziba is asked by the king, he said, what are these for? And Zebra replied, the donkeys are for the king's people to ride on and the bread and the summer fruit are for the young men to eat. The wine is for those who become exhausted in the wilderness. Boy, praise God. And then David says, well, where, where's your master? Where's Mephibosheth? I thought you're supposed to be serving him. And Zeba said, he stayed in Jerusalem. And he replied, he said, today, he, he said that he stayed in Jerusalem because he said, today I will get back the kingdom of my grandfather Saul. Boy, David treated Mephibosheth so well. And now Mephibosheth is turned on him just like Ahithophel turned on him, his trusted advisor. Everyone's turning on him. Why is everyone turning on him? In that case, the king told Ziba, I give you everything Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth owns. And Ziba said, I bow before you. May I always be pleasing to you, my lord, the king. Now, seemingly, this was a godsend in the moment David desperately needed it. But unfortunately for David, David walked himself right into a manipulating opportunist. And that was Ziba. Everything Ziba was telling David in that moment was a lie. It was not true. You'll find out in future chapters that Ziba was literally looking to play both sides you'll see that Ziba does not go on with David and his men. If you were really with King David, you would probably saddle up and jump in the posse with him. But Ziba stays back. Why does he do this? He says, I'm going to bless David with some stuff that's not even his stuff. It's really Mephibosheth's stuff. But I'm going to take some of my master's stuff, give it to King David, make it seem like, David, I'm on your side. And then I'm going to stay back just in case Absalom comes looking for David. I can say, well, I'm not with David. I'm not with your father. I'm with you, Absalom. He's playing both sides. Ziba was not loyal to the the chosen anointed one that God had set up. He was only loyal to his own well-being. And there are a lot of Zebas in our world. You're always going to come into Zebas. You will struggle with being a Ziba. That's That's in your own flesh, your own sin nature. That is your sin nature's default is to be a Ziba. 
We see this from the Old Testament, the New Testament. We even see it in American history. There's a story of, a, of really a turning point of our war where, our, where the Revolutionary War, the men were just ragtag group of men, but they went to a place called Valley Forge. In Valley Forge, they, they stayed, the men, George Washington's men stayed for, for the whole winter and they were, trying to, they were trying to bolster their forces, teach these farmers how to go up against the world's greatest military, the British military, and defend freedom and liberty for their children and children's children. And they lived in this place called Valley Forge for months and they hit this hard winter in the northeastern part of the Pennsylvania. You know, the winters up there can be pretty cold. Men were starving, they were dying of, of, of uh hypothermia, they were freezing to death, and, and it was just, it was awful. And they would go into local towns, and local towns would be run, all these shops that had all the goods that they needed to stay alive for food and clothing, these shop owners would say, eh, I'll help you out, but I'm going to gouge out up the price. You know, you know, this used to cost $5, now it's going to cost $15, just because I know how desperate you are. Well, that's the spirit of Zeba. And they were also saying, eh, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna maybe like step back just a little bit. I'll give you some stuff so I can be on your good side, but if the British ever come, I don't want to, I don't want to be known as helping you. I want to make sure that I can play both sides. And you know, I don't know who's gonna win yet. In the world of government, it's astounding how many people play that game of like, well, I would I like what you're doing, but I can't really support you because uh, I don't know if you're gonna really be victorious here. That's the spirit of Ziba. We all wrestle with that in some way, shape, or form. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say this. Don't look at who's gonna win. Look at who God has anointed. Look at who God has called to do this. This is one of the most famous paintings that exists in American history right now. This is George Washington kneeling by his horse at Valley Forge praying. Was George Washington anointed by God? Yes, without a doubt, to do what he did to lead a revolution. Without the help of God, George Washington would have never in a million years been able to do what he did. And you know how Washington, you know how I know Washington was anointed by God? Many stories, but, but one in particular. About 15 years, 20 years earlier in the French and Indian Revolution, or the French and Indian War, George Washington was fighting with the French at, to help the French in, in battling the Indians. And he was one of the, he was one of the commanders of, the, of this infantry that was, that was going out to battle the Indians. And there were about 20 to 25 uh, leaders, uh, commanders that were riding horses and everyone else was on, was on the ground. Well, the Indians, they were good shots with their muskets and they started picking off the commanders one by one. The chief of the Indian tribe said, go after the guys on the horses because those are the leaders. Get them and everyone else will, will, will scurry. And they all start dropping like flies, all of them. All 20 or 23, I think is what, what the number was. They all get shot and killed, except for George Washington. Now, George Washington, later, down, later in, uh, in his years, he meets this Indian chief. And the Indian chief comes up to him and says, I know who you are. And George Washington says, what? What do you mean you know who I am? You're the guy that has the great spirit protecting him. And, and Washington was like, what do you mean? He said, when you were fighting with the French, I told my sharpshooters to take you out. You were the last commander. And I myself saw full, four bullets go from my musket into your body and it didn't, you didn't even flinch. And you know what George Washington said? He said, you'll never believe this. He said, when I took off my coat that day, I had four bullet holes in my shirt, but it never hit my body. 
You know how you're anointed by God? When the enemy comes to try to take you out, he can't. And, and that's when, do you know, what the, you know what the chief said in that moment? He said, when I saw my four bullets go into you and you didn't flinch, he said, I told all my men to stop wasting their ammo on you. He said, stop, stop trying to take that guy out. He's protected by the great spirit. And you know what the Indian chief was doing in that moment? He was saying, if God has anointed him, we ain't gonna stop him, right? Whether he knew it was God, the God we serve or not, he knew there was a great power protecting him. He said, I'm not gonna waste my ammo because I can't come against the Lord's anointed. Here's a, here's a secular Indian that recognizes a biblical principle that not even Absalom or sometimes not even we can see. When God is on your side, there is no one that's gonna be able to stop you. Now, it doesn't mean you won't suffer consequences. It doesn't mean you have full reign to do whatever you want. People have abused this anointed principle. I'm God's anointed, don't tell me anything I don't wanna hear. No, that's not what that means. There is absolute accountability that leaders need. And it's okay to come from an accountability perspective to a leader, but it's not okay to start taking them off, off their, their horse. Only God's the one that can do that. And so here we have, but the Zebas were well, alive and well in Valley Forge. The Zebas are alive and well in today's culture. You're gonna be battling Zebas even in your own heart. They always look for the hardships of others as an opportunity for their own gain. Now, I believe, like I said earlier, David's gonna find out that this was, this is not true. What David did here, he did not rely on the discernment and the wisdom of God. He went to his own heart and he said, how dare Mephibosheth turn on me? He was taken over by a lie, but if he would have just paused and he would have just said, hold on a second, thank you for the food, thank you for the resources, but I want to hear it from Mephibosheth's mouth that he's against me. That would have been a biblical principle. In Proverbs 18, chapter, or verse 13, it says this, to answer before listening is a folly and a shame. Hearing both sides is important. Proverbs 18, 17 says this, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. That's the NIV, but the, re, the New Revised Standard Version says this, the one who first states a case seems right until another comes and cross-examines. If you're a lawyer, you know this principle very, very well. The prosecution lays out their case first. The accusation comes first. It doesn't stop there. They rest their case and then the defense gets to happen. And a jury has to sit there and listen to the prosecution and then they get to hear the other side. That's a biblical principle. That's why we do it that way because Proverbs says this, our founders knew that one side will always seem right until the other presents its case. I see this a lot with my two kids. <laughs> Savannah, she's like got me wrapped around her finger and she'll just start crying. And I'll be like, what happened? I will do whatever you tell me to do in this moment right now. Who did this to you? And she'll say, Brody. And I'll be like, Brody, get down here right now. What did you do to your sister? And Brody will say, well, she took my thing. She did something to me. And, and I'll say, Savannah, did you do that? Thinking like, I went out on a limb for you, Savannah. Like you got it. But now I'm hearing the other side and it seems like you may have been slightly deserving of that to some extent, right? So, you know, so I see this, this, I do this all the time. The Lord is teaching me. He's like, Micah, this is a great principle that you should learn, right? You know, like you need to learn this. All right, so uh, the one who states his case first always seems right until the other cross-examines. So David should have just rested on the Lord and said, Lord, what's going on here? But he went to his own knee-jerk reaction, which is like, fine, I, I can't stand Mephibosheth. Ziba, you take all of his stuff. As king, I give it all to you now. 
Then they move on. As King, came, as King David came to Baharim, a man of the village cursing them, came out cursing them. It was Shimei, son of Gira, from the same clan as Saul's family. Now, uh, Baharim is just past Bethany, so they would have gone through Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus uh, were from. And they would be on the way, like I said earlier, to the Dead Sea. And so now this man, one of Saul's family, comes who's got a bone to pick with David. He's never liked David. He's never got on board with, the, with David being the anointed because his relative Saul was destroyed. And he's always blamed David for it. And he goes on to say this, he threw stones at the king and the king's officers and all the mighty warriors who surrounded him. So he comes out and he starts throwing stones at him. This guy, he's got a death wish or something. David's mighty men were, they were killers. They were like bona fide killers. I mean, they were the Navy SEALs of that day. They could take you down and not even think twice about it. And he comes out and he starts throwing stones at the king and the officers and all of David's mighty men. And he says this, he says, get out of here, you murderer, you scoundrel, he shouted at David. The Lord is paying you back for all the bloodshed in Saul's clan. You stole his throne and now the Lord has given it to your son Absalom. At last, you will taste some of your own medicine for you are a murderer. Now, isn't it interesting that he invokes the name? Remember when it's all capitalized? It's the name of Yahweh, the sacred name, the name that like when you, when you swear by the name of Yahweh, you're saying this is absolutely right. And he says, Yahweh is paying you back for all the bloodshed of Saul's clan. Did David kill anybody in Saul's clan? No. He never once laid a hand on Saul or Jonathan or Ishbosheth or in the, it was the opposite. He blessed Mephibosheth. He reached out after all of Saul's people were dead. He says, is there anyone left from the house of Saul so that I can bless him? So that we can unify the kingdom? So that I can show that really there is no bad blood. There never was between Saul and I. But this guy thought that he knew what God was doing. Boy, it's really dangerous. When you come out and start saying that you know what God's doing, you better, you better just know. You better know. But now we see the Shimei. So David meets the Zebas, the little snakes, and now he's coming up against the Shimei. And the Shimei are, are, are those who love to see leadership fall, love to see the successful fall. And usually it's coming from a place of their own failures and their own insecurities. I remember when I was touring with a Christian band, we would be at festivals and, and there, was a, there was a really successful artist back in the mid, or the mid 2000s and his name was Jeremy Camp. You remember Jeremy Camp? Jeremy Camp was a successful artist and, and, and he was, I, Jeremy's got a great heart. He's from Lafayette, loves the Lord. Like he's always been a very solid, just like I'm doing this because I wanna, I wanna honor God with my gifts. And he was very successful. But some of the purists in the industry, in the Christian music industry, the ones that were like these, you know, these artists, they wanted to come out with their emo stuff, their hats and their skinny jeans. And <laughs> I don't have skinny jeans, I have skinny legs, okay? so. It's always been a problem. But, uh, but I, I remember some of them would, would really blast Jeremy Camp. They would say, oh, yeah, like his new album, it's bombed. Like, we're so glad to see that it's, he's not being successful. They would blast him. They were eager for him to fall. And, and I just remember thinking to myself, I don't know if I would necessarily jump into that, you know, battle too quickly, guys, because God may be behind his success. And if God's behind his success, and they didn't like Jeremy Camp because they felt Jeremy was kind of the, the CCM teeny bopper, kind of like it's all super easy music, but it was powerful music, powerful words, and it was anointed. I mean, there was a lot of his stuff that was very anointed. And yet these purists who were super creative, wanted to have the, you know, the, the most creative album on the market, they'd look at Jeremy and say, oh, he's a sellout. 
And when he wouldn't do well, they, I remember they would blast him. I'd be, and they were just like, oh yeah, we're so glad he's happening. And I just, even then I was like, this doesn't feel right because maybe God is behind Jeremy's success. So if you're going to come against somebody, now remember, there is a time and a place to stand up and come against somebody. But if you're going to do it, just make sure your accusations are pure. Make sure you really truly know what God is doing. Because if you are on the wrong side of those, of those accusations, it's going to hurt you. There's a great, there's a great example I, I like to use this. So, and, and please hear me, I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to uh, make, well, I'm not trying to support any one political candidate here right now. But what I will say this, in 2014, in the end of 2014, I saw a man ride down a golden escalator in Trump Tower, and he announced his run for presidency. And I remember thinking to myself, I said, uh, there's no way. Like, that guy doesn't have the moral capacity. That guy doesn't have the leadership capacity. That guy is just a television star, uh, and, you know. And there is no way he's ever going to be president. And as I said that to myself, no joke, I heard the Lord just say this to me so clearly. He said, Micah, if I'm behind this, don't get in the way. And so at that moment, I just was like, okay, I'm just going to like, I didn't come out like in, in raving support right away. You know, I was like, we're just going to see. Okay, that's good. That's a good. We're going to see what happens, right? Now, you know when the Lord is behind you because you, you, just, you just begin to rise in, as far as your, your favor goes. And there were so many, if you remember that presidential primary, there were so many good candidates. Like you had Ted Cruz, you had uh, Mike Huckabee. Mike Huckabee loves the Lord. Mike Huckabee is the, a gem of a guy, right? You had all these great candidates, people who were like genuinely awesome people. And yet they couldn't put a dent. And, and Donald Trump was saying all the wrong things, right? He was like, like, it was just like, oh my gosh, he's done. And then it's like, well, she's not done. Oh, he, he just said that. Oh, he's done. Like, no way, right? I remember, I remember in that early on in his presidency, in his campaign, there were three men in particular that I, that I saw attacking Donald Trump. And it was Charlie Rose from PBS. It was Brian Lauer from NBC. I think it was, yeah, Brian Lauer. And it was, um, it was Harvey Weinstein, who was a big Hollywood guy. I remember all those guys were, were attacking big time Donald Trump for being a womanizer, right? For treating women poorly. And trust me, Donald Trump has treat, treat, treated women very poorly. So I'm not, this is like David. I'm not saying that David was justified in what he did with, with Bathsheba. No, absolutely not. He had to deal with the consequences. Same thing here. But I remember thinking to myself, okay, if the Lord is truly behind this guy named Donald Trump, those same arrows that they're shooting at him, the Lord's going to grab them. He's going to spin them around. He's going to take them right out. And sure enough, one by one, Brian Lauer was called out and caught in sexual accusations. Charlie Rose, same thing. And Harvey Weinstein, even more so, who's in jail now because of it. And the Lord said, Micah, do not get in my way. I love you, but if you start shooting arrows at the ones that I have anointed, they will come back and they will start taking you out. Don't get in my way. And I've heard many Christians say, well, God couldn't use him. God couldn't use that person. He couldn't use Donald Trump and he couldn't use this person over here because they've done this, this, and this. He couldn't use you. He couldn't use, you know what? If you say that, guess what? Your sin's gonna disqualify you from God using you. God uses whoever he wants to use. And if you rebel against any one of the servants that God has chosen, you're rebelling against God. And I am not here to make a claim for Donald Trump. Please hear me. This is not a Trump is great and everyone else is terrible. No, this is the opposite. It's like, geez, I would have never in a million years thought the Lord would have picked someone like that to do what, what he's done. And he's got his issues. 
He's going to continue to have his issues. But if God says, I'm going to use him, you better get out of the way or else it'll bring you down. And God can use anyone he wants, anyone he chooses. There's a great scripture in Jeremiah 25. And this is Jeremiah the prophet telling the people of Israel, you've disobeyed God, disobeyed him over and over and over again. For 490 years, Israel, you have not given the the land the rest that God has required you to give the land. Every seven years, they were supposed to take a year where they let the land rest. And for 490 years, they weren't doing that. And the prophets were warning the people, and yet they were still disobeying God. So the Lord said to Jeremiah, he says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked, wicked man. He was not a good guy in any way, shape or form by any standards. The guy was, he was a wicked man, but yet the Lord calls him my servant. Boy, if he can say that about Nebuchadnezzar, he can say that about anyone. And he says, I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. And I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. He's basically giving multiple prophecies right here. But I want you to understand this. He, he led the Lord allowed and led the Israelites into 70 years of captivity under Babylonian rule by a, a wicked king. Nebuchadnezzar, who he calls my servant. Now, do the math. This is kind of cool. 490 years, the Israelites were disobeying. Every seven years, they should have let the land rest. The Lord allowed Babylon to come in and they took the Israelites away from the land. So the land sat dormant for 70 years. That was the amount of time in exile. Well, guess what? 70 years times seven is how many years? 490. The Lord said, you wouldn't obey me. The land requires rest. For 490 years, you've been rejecting my, 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 my command to let the, the, the land rest. So I'm going to get the land to rest one way or the other. And he said, if I have to move you out, I will. And he moves them out by using a wicked king who he calls his servant Nebuchadnezzar. Again, God can use anyone. If God is behind this, get out of the way or else you too will find the wrong end of that arrow. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, this is going back to 2 Samuel, said to the king, why should this dead dog, speaking of Shimei, curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. <laughs> like how I do that for a fact. And cut off his head, right? Well, just so you know, Abishai and Joab were sons of Zariah. Zariah was the sister of David, and they were warriors. They, they were not afraid to go into battle. And so here they are with King David, and they said, David, just let me go take this guy out. And listen to David's response. This is the crux of this whole passage. I want you to hear this right now. This is the crux of this whole passage. But the king said, what does this have to do with you, sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all of his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. Speaking of Absalom, how much more than this Benjamite? Like, Absalom's trying to kill me. You think this guy really is a serious threat? Just let him, let him be. Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. Now, this, the humility here is incredible. David is recognizing something. He's saying, maybe, just maybe, God is behind this. And if God is behind this, even though I don't like it, who am I to stop it from happening? 
And then he turns though, and this is the beauty of David and his heart for the Lord. This is why the Bible says David had a heart after God's own heart. What that means is that David knew God in an intimate way that many people don't get to know or many people in that day and age couldn't fathom. He knew the character of God. And so he turns from the consequences of a just God and he turns over to the mercy of a good, good God. And he says this in verse 12, he says, it may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore me to his covenant blessing instead of this, his curse today. David says, I know God has spoken all these things to happen to me, but I wonder if the eyes of the Lord are looking upon me with pity and saying, and longing to bring me back into goodness. And I know God, and God is a good God, and God is a merciful God. And just maybe, if I just throw myself at the mercy of the king, he will rescue me and he will set me back on a good path. So don't, don't take out this guy. Maybe this guy is, maybe God's led him here. I am 100% at the mercy of this awesome God. David's showing things of godly, godliness right here, even though, like I said, he's been a, not a very good king or a good, good father. And he's lacked godliness. Godly leaders don't run and hide from criticism. Godly leaders do what David did. Maybe, just maybe, God is behind this criticism. Maybe this person was sent by God to make, help me wake up and see something that maybe is a blind spot in my life. Just maybe, God is behind this. Now, it doesn't mean that God is behind every criticism, so please hear me, I'm not saying that you have to listen or, or, or obey every criticism, change course because of every criticism. No, but you should, you should pause and say, Lord, is this you? Is this your voice? Even when Shimei is doing things like hurling rocks at them and curses at them, he doesn't respond and say, you're wrong. I demand that you respect me. He says, no, maybe, just maybe, this is from the Lord. And I think David, it's the whole the whole embodiment of this season in David's life is he's, turn, he's going back, he's running back to, to what it was like when he was on the run the first time, where he had to fix his eyes on God. He had to fix his eyes on the one who could really truly save him. Remember, David was running from Saul and he knew without God, there was no hope. And God raised him up because his eyes were fully fixed on God. And then David got lazy, he got lax, he thought, I'm good now, I'm king, I'm ruling over everything. I don't really need to fix my eyes on God quite as much anymore. And then it caused him to be right back where he started. And that was running as a fugitive in the wilderness. And now he's beginning to do what was the secret of his success in the first place, turning his eyes and fixing him back on the one who could actually save him. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he, as he went, throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. This guy, seriously, <laughs> like, okay, you know, I think there might have come a point where I'd be like, all right, Abishai, just, you know, go do what you want to do. But David just took it. And then the king and all of his people arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. You know, David's response to Shimei is probably a greater accomplishment than even David's victory over Goliath. And you may say, whoa, Pastor Micah, that's a big statement. Well, this is what scripture says. Don't take my word for it. Proverbs 16 says this, better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. This, it's, it's kind of cool as you see David going through this, because it's like he's coming back 
to the strength that made him David. He's coming back to recognizing there's peace and security in the one true God. This is a, yeah, that, to me, that's the joy in this story. You may think, oh man, David, he's, he's walking away. He's, he's got to run for his life. And I think, no, no, no. Now God can do in David's heart what God really wants to do. And that's returning him back to that little shepherd boy who sat on those fields praising God with everything he was because it was all God. That's all that mattered. And the secret of David's peace was just that. He had confidence in a God of unguessable grace who has a tendency to replace cursing with goodness. Do you feel like you're living under a generational curse? Do you feel like there's nothing good that can ever come? Do you feel like you're walking and it's just like one thing after the other continues to, to knock you down? Know God, know the God of unquestionable grace who has a tendency to replace all of those curses with goodness. And you may say, well, he has a tendency, but how does it happen? It's what I said earlier, church. Walk, no, don't walk, run into the arms of Jesus Christ. Be covered by the blood that will break those curses, that will break all of those things, that will, that will set you back on the right path, that will allow the God of goodness to cover you with grace and, and gifts and lavish you with his spirit and all of the things that he wants to give you. But you got to be like David. you got to turn your eyes on Jesus. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us, share with a friend, and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Our mission is simple. Come to life, connect to grow, find your purpose, make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Life Church Podcast.